my specific role is supporting the portfolio company founders and finance people, whether that's a, a, a founder or a, a hired CFO or a VP finance, something in, you know, in that realm. My role is basically to um, advise and educate these founders and, and finance people on uh, what banking products are available to, to start up technology companies. Hey, it's Zach from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Russell Folensby. Russell leads Silicon Valley Bank's enterprise software team in New England, which counts roughly 60%, six, six zero, nearly two-thirds of venture-backed startups in the greater Boston region as clients. Uh, Russell uh, has some amazing experience across high-tech software industries, which has really afforded him some deep insights into patterns of success and failures. So we had a really interesting conversation today just about how he's really an active resource to founders and C-level executives in the New England region. So uh, looking forward to sharing this with the community. Um, Also be on the lookout. Russell's part of a team at Silicon Valley Bank, along with Jesse Bardo, um, just helping support regional storytelling efforts. And there's there's a big report they're supporting about cybersecurity. And we'll, we'll dig into cybersecurity a bit on this podcast. But in, in the months ahead, uh, expect a big cybersecurity report coming from uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and partners such as New England Venture Capital Association. So get to know Russ, enjoy, hit us with questions, and uh, appreciate everyone's time as always. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Stravideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Silicon Valley Bank's Russell Follinsby. Hey, Russ, what's going on? Hey, Zach. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, I promise to uh, to be gentle. I know this is your first podcast, uh, but we've been you know jamming quite a bit over the years, and we were just jamming for for 15 minutes and uh, I can already tell you're a natural. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time today. Absolutely. So Ross, for, for listeners, I think it'd be helpful. Why don't you just give folks like a, a background just on your uh, position in market right now, leading the Silicon Valley Bank uh, enterprise software team in New England, sort of what that entails and just and sort of like your role uh, working with founders and, and, and the, what stages they're, they're typically in. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to start, um, you know, I, I'm a managing director at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and it, it's good to know a little history of SVB before going into my role. Um, but for the past 35 plus years, SVB has supported uh, venture-backed companies and also the, the VCs and PE firms that um, are, are funding these businesses. And we're one of the only banks who has has been in the industry or in the innovation economy for um, for that 
long of a time and, and been through the ups and downs of uh, what can be a, a somewhat volatile market. Um, and so my specific role is supporting the portfolio company founders and finance people, whether that's a, a, a founder or a, a hired CFO or a VP finance, something in, you know, in that realm. My role is basically to um, advise and educate these founders and, and finance people on uh, what banking products are available to, to start up technology companies. So generally, I start my relationship with a founder at the Series A or uh, what has more commonly become an institutional seed round. And what I mean by institutional, that's that's an actual fund investing in a company rather than you know high net worth individuals. Um, and and what I try to do is is make sure they're aware of of everything that um, you know is is available to them. And then if it helps them and, and creates a, a, a higher chance or probability of success for their company to to use our products and services, then um, then it's a win win for everybody. Great. Super helpful overview, Russ. That actually begs a couple follow-up questions with regards to the size of series A rounds and sort of how that compares to the institutional sort of fund early stage rounds that you just referenced. And just in in terms of how things have changed, maybe they've changed uh, a bit more and, and those changes have accelerated during the pandemic. What sorts of like check sizes first are we talking about in terms of like these stories, these series A and series A sort of adjacent rounds and you know, what kind of valuations are we talking about as well for the, the companies that you're beginning relationships with? Yeah, that's a, gr- that's a great question. Um, and I actually just moderated a panel of, of three great Boston VCs last week and we were talking about this exact phenomenon, but um, so to go into specific numbers, um, the average uh, the average Series A in 2016, and this is nationally, not just in Boston, um, but the average Series A in 2016 was six million dollars, and the average Series A in 2021 was 12 million dollars. So um, you can you can see that the amount invested. In, in an average Series A deal over six years has doubled. That's amazing growth. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of two things at play here. The first is that um, valuations have increased. So the average valuation for a Series A in 2016 was $15 million, uh, And that's a, a pre-money valuation. Mm-hmm. And the average pre-money valuation in 2021 is $35 million. So VCs have... Uh, most VCs have an equity minimum that they're looking for. So they want to get at least 15 to 20% of, of equity in a company. And that's really because they're spending a lot of time and investment on making sure this company is successful. And so they want to make sure their payout at the end is, um, you know, is meaningful enough for that effort to be worthwhile. And one of the reasons that those valuations have increased is the, um, the, the software as a service market has just proven way more successful um, than you know, people might have thought it would be. Um, net retention numbers for scaled software companies 
are actually higher than a lot of people expected. And so the growth rates, even in, at the later stage, have remained high um, when typically, you know, typically on Wall Street, people are assuming um, growth rates are going to go down, whereas, you know, enterprise software companies have, have continued to grow at a, at a much higher rate than expected. So there have been huge wins and therefore um, the risk taking or the, the amount of, of uh, risk that people are, are willing to take at the earlier stage has increased. Um, so, so that's a general overview of, of kind of series A, both uh, how much they've inve they're investing and valuation. And there's a whole lot more at play here. SVB does a software as a service state of the markets. So reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to, to send this report to you or uh, have a one-on-one -on -one call and answer all the questions that you have. That's great. Yeah, maybe we can even um, create that call to action in the, uh, in the written post we'll put up for this. Uh, yep. one, one, one other follow-up question. So what industries are, are you focused on? And it, it seems like we're, we're talking about software, but correct me if I'm wrong there. And but specifically, what kind of industries um, or markets or verticals? And are those, would you say those are consistent with the highest growth rate markets that you're seeing in general? Um, you know, nationally or globally, investors are most keen to put their money behind? So, yeah, I should have, I should have been more clear at the, at the outset that um, SCB focuses, focuses our coverage first on geography. We think it's very important to be in the same area as the founders and the companies um, because it's important to have a community around that supports um, the founders and, and kind of everybody in, in the innovation economy. So we, we first and foremost focus on geography. And then when there is enough volume um, deal-wise, we, we secondarily focus on vertical. So obviously Boston is, is one of the three major tech hubs. So we have the luxury of being able to, to focus on a specific vertical. My focus is all enterprise software. Um, and so any company that has raised venture dollars in Boston that is an enterprise software um, or is selling software to the enterprise, and that could be small and medium-sized businesses or it could be Fortune 500 companies that they're selling to, but um, all of those companies fall into my purview. And I will say, um, you know, specific to your question about which, which verticals are taking off um, in 2021 specifically, both FinTech and um, software as a service revenue multiples have doubled sit from 2020 to 2021. Uh, so what's in what, a year? Just in a year. So what that means is um, the same business, you know, a $5 million uh, annual recurring revenue business may have been valued at let's say 60 million last year is being valued at 120 million this year. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a pretty amazing time to be raising venture capital as, uh, as a, as an enterprise software entrepreneur. That's great. That's really interesting. Well, what are the 
top three geographies that SVB is focused on? You mentioned Boston is one of them. I'm curious what the top three are. And then any just new burgeoning markets in the United States where where SVB is looking to create uh, and, and establish more of a presence because folks have relocated there uh, during the pandemic. There's been plenty of coverage of sort of little innovation hotbeds, uh, you know, popping up in in sort of uh, new unfamiliar places for tech. Yep, that's that's a great question. Um, the three main the, the three main hubs in which venture investors are putting money to work are San Francisco or, or NorCal, not just the city of San Francisco, but, but that area, mm-hmm. um, the Bay Area, New York City, and then Boston. Mm-hmm. So um, those are SCB's three biggest offices, but we've got 26 offices around the country um, and have been supporting you know, cities like Atlanta, Chicago, Austin, um, Seattle, Salt Lake City, um, which have always been great markets, but have seen uh, even more investment dollars pour into um, those. I don't want to call them secondary markets because it, uh, that sounds like a negative term, but uh, but smaller might be the right way to describe it. Those smaller areas of innovation have seen a huge boon in company formation and investment dollars um, going into their cities because remote work has has kind of democratized the way venture investors are are going to market. You know, you can Zoom, if, if you're doing Zoom meetings, you can Zoom with somebody in San Francisco, but you can also Zoom with somebody in Austin or Salt Lake City. Um, and it's the same type of due diligence that you're doing. Whereas venture investors used to want to be in person, be very close to their portfolio companies, that that need has um, has shifted during the pandemic. That's really interesting. Um, I wonder. I don't know if this this is just like I don't know suspicion of mine. But do you think there's any correlation between the hybrid, but it leaning more towards remote? workforce in 2021 that has led to that 2x valuation in in SaaS businesses because there's like less overhead in terms of both office space and also like talent in lower cost geographies and therefore like they can they can be paid you know competitive salaries for that area which would be far less than maybe a Boston New York or, or Bay Area so I'll, I'll, let me start with the question on salary. Um, yeah. y- you would think that an engineer in Pittsburgh is going to make a different amount of money than an engineer in Northern California or Boston or New York. Um, what we have seen recently, and this is a recent phenomenon, so that used to be correct. But what we've seen recently is that a California company or a Boston or New York company who are used to paying very high salaries are not changing their salary ranges for the best talent in North Carolina or Pittsburgh or Chicago. So um, where you used to be able to find deals in these um, these smaller innovation cities, um, you're no longer able to find that. And I, one of my good friends, 
here in Boston, um, actually just changed jobs from a Boston based company to a California company and his, his salary doubled. So, um, there is not enough engineers. Um, and so therefore wherever you can find a good one, you know, any company is willing to pay top dollar and it doesn't matter what city that, that you're currently in. Interesting. And I, that, that, I, that makes sense. And I think from an engine, an engineering talent standpoint, I, I could see why that would be the case. Um, competitive market supply and demand, like doesn't matter where they are. Like that's a mission critical job, uh, tied to product. The, the reason that I have this suspicion is based on anecdotal evidence, but it's anecdotal evidence from a friend of mine that works at Instagram. So like technically a Facebook employee, and she still lives in the Bay area. She's originally from Boston. Um, and basically, you know, this was a year ago. I remember it was last August, early in the pandemic. They basically told all the employees of Facebook and Instagram, if they wanted to move to another city, they could, but that their salary would be, um, modified based on where they chose to move. Yeah. And, and that, that is, that is consistent a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. and then I think the talent wars between tech companies got even more, um, uh, I guess more intense. Sure. And, and so I think those, those types of conversations are changing. And to be clear, that might be Facebook's, um, you know, policy internally, but if one of your best engineers or one of your best marketers, whatever the role is, if they say, Hey, I want to move to Denver for, for family reasons or, um, a better, you know, work-life balance reasons. Right. And this other company is offering me the same salary. Mm-hmm. Facebook's probably going to say, okay, fine, go move there. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll give you the same salary because it is so much harder to replace that person. Uh, and so much more costly to replace that person than it is just to retain he or she. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there was a sense a year ago when the pandemic or a year and a half ago when the pandemic started that you could pay people less. But if you're in high demand and you're really good at your job, I think it's the first time in a long time, um, at least that I've witnessed in my career, where the employee has uh, way more negotiating power than than ever before. Amen. Power to the people. I love I, it. I agree. Yeah. I have a, a couple of, a couple more questions, and then I kind of want to go take a trip down memory lane and talk about sort of how you got to to where you are today. Uh, the one thing I want to just kind of click into is the part of SVB's business that you're sort of connected to, but is more sort of like our buddy, Jesse Bardo's part of the business. And we've had Jesse on the podcast, but can you just speak to sort of like, so for a lot of listen, a lot of our listeners are younger entrepreneurs and a lot of them are first time entrepreneurs in their early stage and they're raising sort of friends and family kind of angel, you know, that everyone like people like to, sometimes throw the tag on it, the pre-seed round. Um, and, and SVB has, has services for, for those sort of earlier stage companies. Can you just speak a little bit just to sort of, you know, the flexibility of, of Silicon Valley Bank's services and how it sort of uh, supports really early stage companies that are uh, their, their next sort of big business goal would be to achieve a Series A and sort of enter into that um, sort of more frontier tech team at SVB? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, the 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 pre-institutional round team at SUD is actually much larger than any other. Um, there, there are a lot more clients in that group than any other. And one of the things we pride ourselves on is trying to support um, our entrepreneurs and these businesses from their first bank account to uh, their first in- institutional round of funding to their IPO and, and beyond. So um, while I might take over as lead on the relationship only after an institutional round of funding, most of our clients start with us, you know, for their first bank account. And um, we can, we can provide unsecured credit cards um, that are not cash secured. So um, there's, there's just a lot of, of um, knowledge around how a, a bootstrapped company at the beginning needs banking services that a larger bank that doesn't have the, the industry knowledge or, or just the relationships um, in market, they, they just don't understand the needs of, of these very early stage companies. So um, Jesse's role, which I think is amazing, is not even to, um, you know, to, to market products to our clients. His role is just to be an evangelist and bring people together with investors and other entrepreneurs and problem solve with, um, with groups of people. Um, and that's really what a startup needs in the beginning is a group of people that care about the success of the business more than monetizing um, that relationship. And that's, SCD has thought that way from the very beginning. Um, we hope that those, those people remember our partnership and will stay with us for the long haul, and, and most do. Um, but it, it's a very good point of uh, you know that I that I, I I did not speak about before, which is SVB's relationship with companies starts well before um, well before any venture capital round of funding. And let let me just say one other thing for those people on the phone. I'm talking about how much capital is being um, you know put into into innovation, the, the innovation economy and the, these these companies, it is still so hard to raise venture capital. You are going to have, you're, you are going to be told no so often um, that you're going to think, and, and you, there's this imposter syndrome of, you know, everyone else seems to be having such success and it's coming so easy to them. Well, behind the curtain of that, $40 million series B announcement was a hundred no's. So don't feel like if you're getting no's out of the gate, that your idea is bad or wrong, just push through. And uh, the, the people who are able to just continue to believe in their vision are the ones who are ultimately um, announcing that institutional round. So uh, that's, that's a very important thing to think about. No, that's a good point. I, um, be remiss not to share this because it's just it's you just hit a bullseye on uh, one of the things I hit on a lot with my students at Endicott College where I'm an entrepreneur in residence I teach an entrepreneurship course and I had a a buddy of mine named Michael Cairn he was actually the last podcast guest that I had on Boston Speaks Up and he's a performance coach and he likes to say that sort of 
our success is sort of like an evolved manifestation of all of our failures. And we'll, you know, if, if you do it right, you'll fail a lot and a lot and all of your failures are what are really what kind of give you all the, the calluses and the scar tissue required to have like, you know, the refinement, um, to succeed, um, at a really high level. So yeah, I think you just kind of nailed, nailed it. And it's something I had to learn early in my career in like marketing and PR, like, Oh, like I'm going to face, like, I'm going to be told no a lot. And, and I'm going to fail way more than I succeed. But each time I fail, like what are the lessons that, that, you know, you sort of learn from that. So I think that's a super valuable lesson, especially for the young people listening to the podcast today. Absolutely. And, and another analogy I love is, is the, the part of the iceberg that's showing is the success. Right. And the, the part of the iceberg that's under the water is all the failures yeah. that build you up to that success. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, one other thing I want to bring up before we go back down memory lane is uh, just some of the work you're doing with Build Greater Boston. Like that kind of jumped out at me when I was just, I was looking through some of the the work you're doing, um, you know, currently and you're, I think you're, you're rising, you're part of the rising leaders board of, of Build Greater Boston. Like, do you want to just share a little bit what, what that role means and like what that organization is up to? Yeah, so so Build is an, a, an absolutely amazing organization, and the goal um, is to teach entrepreneurship to uh, underrepresented communities um, where uh, you know they they might not have had uh, people in their lives that have created a business or um, have the the knowledge to advise them on on what even how even to start that process. So um, BUILD is a national program. Um, the, the three major cities are New York, Boston, and Silicon Valley. Um, and they go, so the, the program goes into high schools and creates groups of freshmen who, um, who basically come up with a business idea um, and have, they have a, uh, a mentor that uh, you know, SVB provides a bunch of mentors, but there's plenty of great um, uh, companies in Boston and around the country that are that are also providing uh, mentors as well. And basically, that mentor spends the the whole year with this group of freshmen, mm-hmm. um, and they they come up with a business idea, a marketing plan. Um, they they pitch their ideas to you know, fake, but potential investors. Um, and, and really what it's doing is creating this level of, of confidence in somebody who might not have had a public speaking opportunity. Um, it's also getting these kids exposed to corporate boardrooms in, in Boston and, and New York and, and Silicon Valley. So, um, the the amazing part about build is the I don't know the exact stats, but the graduation rates for people for these young kids who are in the build program are staggeringly higher um, than the 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 graduation rates for um, for the the kids in that same high school that don't participate in the build program. Mm. And the ultimate goal is to is to get these kids into college. Um, yeah. And and hopefully along the way they've learned some some entrepreneurial skills and and one of the major problems in technology and innovation right now is that um, there is a, a diversity and inclusion 
um, whole. Uh, SVB SVB just created a a whole new team to try to, um, uh, you know, I think we're in a unique place in the ecosystem to try to bring bring this all together between investors, limited partners, and uh, the the entrepreneurs themselves. Mm-hmm. So we're we're trying we're 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 trying to figure out ways in which we can do better, um, but. You know, all in all, I, I think the 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 main goal is to say, get these kids into college, and if they if they choose to be an entrepreneur, that's great. But most importantly, let's get them exposed to things that they may not have otherwise been exposed to. No, that's really cool. I think uh, build could could be a really like maybe the lead one of the leaders in the build organization would be someone to talk to for Boston Speaks Up podcast in the future. Absolutely. Um, so Roy, Roy Hirschland from T3, mm-hmm. um, and, and they were just purchased by another, oh, yeah. and I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but he is now the, um, I think he's the chair of the national board. So he could be a great person to have on. Excellent. Cool. All right. I might have you help make that connection afterwards. Awesome. Cool. Um, let's, let's take a trip back in time. So where did you, let's have some fun, Russ. Like we'll talk a little bit more about, yeah. about business, but so you're, you're a New England boy through and through. You, you spent time in central Connecticut and Western Mass. Like can you just share a bit about um, your upbringing and describe your childhood a bit? Yeah. So I had a, a wonderful childhood. I, I, my, both my parents worked at um, secondary schools. So Loomis Chafee and, and Deerfield Academy. Um, so I had access to these amazing campuses with pools and lacrosse fields and hockey rinks and, um, art facilities, uh, you know, what, these amazing institutions. And I had access to all of these things year round. So, um, you know, I was never bored. And the other great thing is there, there was always other faculty members who had kids my age. And Mm -hmm. so, I had a gaggle of kids to run around, and what what I focused on growing up was um, was was mainly sports. So we always were playing street hockey, or had a lacrosse game going on in, in the front yard, or um, you know if if it was winter, we we'd head over to the rink with our skates. So um, I had a very very lucky childhood between um, you know between uh, both of those schools and. Um, my, my parents were divorced and both got remarried. So, um, I have three step brothers and three step sisters. So, uh, you know, a, a great, um, great exposure to a bunch of different personalities. And, um, you know, luckily, you know, I think my parents are, are better off in, in the marriages they're currently in. So, um, it all worked out well, but I, I did have a, I had a great childhood. Cool. So you have, we have one brother and then you have three step brothers, three step sisters. So you have seven siblings. Exactly. Right on. Yeah. As someone who's has one of his parents remarried with, with a few step, um, siblings, like, yeah, you, it, it, it's like, I love the way you put it. Like you just, you end up interact, you know, just you interact with, with more people that are like in, in your immediate family sort of mix. It, it, it kind of creates interesting, uh, dynamics to kind of help shape you. Um, and I think broaden your, your uh, worldview a bit as you kind of growing and, 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 and maturing into adulthood. So I love the way, you know, 
you, you, I love, I love the silver linings there. Um, I'm curious, was it, was it your mom or your dad who taught it at Deerfield Academy where you eventually went to school? So my mom was the athletic director at Deerfield Academy nice. and then, and then was a Dean while I was there. So <laughs> how was that? That was an interesting, you ever um, get in any hot water? Cause she couldn't take it easy on you. I, so I, my, my mom is, is pretty cool. Um, and honestly, I think she kept me out of hot water. It, it's one of those things when you're a kid, you don't think your parents know what's going on. Um, and then as I've grown older, she's told me stories of, yeah. of things I didn't think she knew about, you know, at, of kid, what kids were doing at Deerfield. And I kind of think to myself, well, man, she knew way more. <laughs> than I thought she knew about, about you gave her credit the, for. Yeah. Yeah. About some of the questionable things I was doing. Um, but cool. you no, know, she, I think she more kept me out of hot water than, um, than got me into it. Nice. I can relate to that. I remember my dad saying to me a few years back, he's like, I knew it was you driving your car when you were 15 and, you, <laughs> and, and, and my car broke down and I, I got one of my older friends to come and show up and say they were driving my car. He didn't tell me that until I could, you know, 15 years later, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I'm like, you saw right through that. Um, cool. Let's talk, let's talk Hartford Whalers, your first love, and then uh, just role models you had growing up. So you, it, there was a point in time where you had dreams of being a professional hockey player and you were going to play for, for the, the now infamous Hartford Whalers. Yes. Yeah, so I, I grew up for a long time outside of Hartford. Um, and you know, if you're outside of Hartford, there's not much going on. Um, there's no other professional teams. And so the Hartford Whalers were it. Um, and they've, they've, they've still, they still have a cult following. And, you know, I think, I still think they have the coolest logo that has ever great yeah. a professional um, <laughs> rink or court or field. But, um, but yeah, I, so I played, I used to play games before their games in the civic center. And then, oh, cool. Um, and then we, my whole team would go to the, the, the game afterwards. And, uh, my two favorite players were Kevin Benin and Brendan Shanahan. Um, and I actually went to a hockey camp with, uh, you know, with the Whalers team at one point. And as a kid, as a hockey player, I don't know if, if this still happened, but we used to create these tape balls where, you know, you tape up your shin pads and your skates. And after you're done, we would roll it up into a big ball. And then you'd do that over weeks and months and maybe years. And so you'd end up with this huge ball of tape that, you know, was kind of a pride thing of like, well, I've got the biggest tape ball in the locker room. <laughs> and I ended up giving my tape ball to Kevin Benin at one point. Um, and he asked me to sign it, which was like the coolest thing <laughs> that could have awesome. ever happened to me. Um, so I... Yes, I thought I was going to be an NHL hockey player. It, it obviously did not work out for me, but um, I, I have that shining moment of, of giving my tape ball to Kevin Deneen forever. Oh, that's awesome. So at that moment in your life, you signed that. You were like, I'm, I'm going to be a professional hockey player. So Kevin Deneen's like, and he's getting an autograph from me early. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, that's going to be my most, that if, you know, on eBay or whatever at that point, that would yeah. have been the most valuable thing that I ever created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're imagining like the future ESPN headlines. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Um, can you just talk a bit, um, you know, a bit about your, was it your, your grandfather who was sort of like your role model and, but in, in sort of, I thought it was really neat that, that you shared, like he was pretty heavy social drinker and your mom wasn't comfortable with that. And he was just like, stopped cold turkey because he wanted to be a part of your life. Like, 
that was that's pretty cool. Um, you want, do you want to share a bit about him? Yeah. So so my grandfather was probably the the I mean my dad's a huge role model in my life. That's that's besides the point. But I think my grandfather was more of a um, of a role model for me than maybe the the typical grandfather is. Um, and I spent a lot of time with him fishing and. Um, you know, just, just riding in long car rides to sports games and, and whatever. Um, so he, he owned his own insurance company, um, in, in upstate New York. And I think the thing that, that struck me most about him was he just, he, he, he had what he needed and then he just shared everything extra with other people. So um, he just, he just was, a, he was a family first person, but then as soon as his family was taken care of, he was taking care of everybody else in the community. And I think that is something that happens less and less now, um, where people, um, take care of, uh, take care of members of the community outside of their, their, um, little bubble. I just, I think that's missing in our, in our communities these days. Um, so that, that's just to kind of put the background of who he was. Um, and he, so the, the story I was telling you earlier is that, um, he was, he was a very heavy drinker. I I think at, you know, at that time, um, you know, he, he graduated from college in 1950. Um, and so there wasn't a lot to do after work. And so you would go and you'd, you'd have drinks with your friends and that was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, maybe all week. Right. Um, and so he, he was a pretty heavy drinker and so was my grandmother. Um, and at one point my mother, um, you know, was visiting him with me and my brother there and he got a little bit too drunk and, um, my mother got a little, um, nervous that if, if we were in the house and saw that, or, um, we would think it was okay behavior. And so yeah. what she said was, if you're going to drink like this, you can't be around my kids. Um, and I would love you to be around my kids. So, so, you know, what is your response to that? And he stopped drinking cold Turkey. Um, which which I thought was like, that's the most amazing thing you could ever ask of somebody who has been doing it, has been drinking for a long period of time. And it's a huge Mm -hmm. part of their social life. Um, and just to, just to say, Oh, that's so unimportant to me. Uh, compared to, you know, be, spending time with my grandchildren. I just thought that was really cool. I think that's amazing. It, it elicits a strong emotional response from me. Um, and and is, your, is your grandfather still alive? No, he passed away oh. in um, 2011 or 2010. So he's, he's, he passed away a while ago, but um, I still think about him all the time. Yeah. And, and we're talking about him right now and he's, you know, not just important to you and the people he touched, but like he's it's, this story literally like connects with me on a deep level. And it, I really appreciate you sharing it with me and, and perhaps it will, it will have, um, you know, a strong sense of connection to some of the listeners too, but that's, that's a really difficult thing for someone to do and, 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 uh, pretty inspiring quite, quite frankly. So that, that's awesome. What a, what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful grandfather. Um, uh, thanks for sharing that Russ. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks yeah. for asking. Yeah, man. Of course. That's what that's Boston Speaks Up's all about, man. It's, it's getting to, it's, it's, you know, we're just jamming. Listeners are tuning in, getting to know, getting to know people in, in the, uh, 
in the you know in the Boston innovation scene and kind of pulling back the veil of like especially for young we have a lot of younger listeners and uh, I know a lot of the folks that uh that I you know I, the young students I work with like they really love the the podcast because it's it's sort of it just we're all human so it's like to say like oh we're human like we're, it's to humanize a human sounds ridiculous but it's like yeah. you see folk you see you know Russell Follinsby and you know looking all handsome with his you know and, and fit in his 30s like crushing it running the enter- enterprise software you know practice for SBB in greater Boston and you know some you know that that can seem um so so you know distant and and unattainable for a young person and and just to kind of share some personal stories and 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 just be human i think is a really neat way for for us all to kind of you know get a little bit more connectivity especially in a world where a lot of us are doing hybrid or just remote work yep um and 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 so i guess um kind of segueing off of that i do have a couple other i do have some other questions i want to ask about sort of like what you did after deerfield and and kind of um you know sort of how you ended up in in the career you're in but to double click on what i just said like you're someone that thrives meeting with people in person and connecting with people and you know you and i had lunch recently and we talked about this like it's you know and i'm similar like you know presence with someone one-on-one or a few people and and at times, you know, at a bigger networking event, you kind of find those, you know, people you want to connect with and just really dial in and be present. How's it been for you? Um, how, you know, and what, you know, tips do you have? Like how challenging is it um, for you? And I, and I imagine, you know, it's similar to me, like, you know, we have established careers, we have a lot of relationships, like we can get people on, you know, Zooms maybe a little more easily. It's, it's a lot harder for younger people. Um, but do you just have any like, you know, things you'd like to share on how you've been you know, networking and staying out there. Um, and then maybe just ways that Silicon Valley bank, which, which I know there are, there've been plenty is, is fostering sort of like digital connectivity um, for folks that have you know, far less um, physical world events to, to go and network and, and sort of, you know, build their Rolodex, if you will. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll start by saying, in person is the best way to develop a relationship with with anybody, um, and I think the main the main thing the main reason for that is because body language and tone uh, is much harder to uh, uh, read when there's just this little box mm-hmm. of, of somebody on a computer. And I think communication is, I don't know exactly the percentages, but what you're, what you're saying is 50% of, of how I read a person um, versus body language and you know, tone and, and how they're reacting to me in the room. I think there's so many more things to read than just what is being said. And that's what you get over Zoom. So it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, Zoom has become meetings have become much more transactional. There's much less um, time spent talking about family and what you like to do outside of work and um, kind of a small talk at the beginning and end of meetings that bring people kind of closer together and, and humanize them, like you said. 
Um, it's not just a CFO of this company. It's a CFO who has two kids um, who, you know, he's potty training one or she's potty yeah. training one and the other one's in kindergarten and like learning how to share, you know, like mm-hmm. those, those types of things um, can just bring you closer to somebody and, and humanize them to you. So it's been much harder. Um, I will also say that it has improved my game or it's, I, I've had to level up my, my game because I used to rely on um, being good at schmoozing uh, and this, this environment has, had, has caused me to have to know my facts really quickly off the top of my head mm-hmm. um, and have really tangible um, uh, and, and value add points to, to provide to these people because they want, we've got 30 minutes and they don't want to, they don't want to schmooze. They want to get down to brass tacks. They want to know what their peers are doing in market. And they want to know how VCs are looking at, at, you know, their business. And so, um, there's no time to mess around. And so I've had to get really good at weaving in really interesting, um, uh, facts and, and, uh, industry dynamics into conversation. So, um, so that's, I guess that's the summary of it. SCB has really tried to continue to build community. Um, we are, we're, I'm actually spearheading in Boston, a, a national CFO network, which will have a digital presence, but also an in-person presence when we, when we go back nice. um, to in-person. So we're, we are, we are trying as much as possible to maintain a community in the innovation economy, but it has been increasingly hard as people are more and more sick of sitting yeah. on Zooms and schmoozing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, the the CFO network you're building, this is the first I'm hearing of that. It makes sense. I mean, I'm sure you've probably read this. Within the last couple months, I read a Wall Street Journal article about the lack of CFO talent and the increase in sort of like consultative sort of outsource CFOs. Uh, and a lot of CFOs are kind of like pivoting, like CFOs that have been quite, you know, happy or content with being a CFO of a single company um, have been encouraged to sort of like, you know, take their uh, talents in a few directions to sort of um, help support this sort of sea of, um, of, you know, fast growing sort of in particular sort of like software sort of SaaS businesses that are being invested in in America. So is, is that kind of, is that part of the reason why you're building the CFO network? Is it sort of out of that sort of like market need? So um, I, I think, yes, that is, that is certainly part of it. Um, I think there is, uh, th- there's a couple of things. Let's, let's just cover what, what you were just talking about, which is what we call fractional or consulting CFOs, meaning they work for anywhere from five to 10 early stage or, or venture funded startups um, instead of just working for one specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost is most of these early stage startups don't need a full-time CFO. Right. Yep. They, want, they want someone who has fundraising chops, but they don't want to pay the salary mm-hmm. to get someone who, who has those fundraising chops. So, you know, we, we very often see um, 
you know, Series A, even sometimes Series B companies have a fractional CFO. Once you get into that Series B and beyond, as you're kind of approaching your your Series C, um, the it becomes more important to have a dedicated CFO because you're then starting to to perfect your sales motion mm-hmm. and uh, and understanding the very detailed um, uh, metrics behind your sales can't. I, I would argue can't be done well enough by a part-time CFO. You need someone who's who's there every day, has relationships with, um, has I guess more in-depth relationships with marketing and sales leadership. Um, so, and that's that's where it it becomes it, it transitions from I'm raising venture capital to create a product and find product market fit to I'm raising venture capital to uh, throw money into sales and marketing um, because I know there's a product market fit, and now I just need to I need to get my product out there. Um, and so that's when a re- that's when a CFO is is really needed yeah. um, full time. And um, th- I think the main reason to have this this network is because their innovation the innovation economy is changing so quickly. But all of the problems that these, or not all of them, many of the problems that these CFOs are trying to solve are similar, but are common. Yeah. Common. So yeah. if you can, our, our goal as a bank is to make our clients successful because if right. our clients are successful, we become more successful. Mm-hmm. So if I can hook a CFO in Boston up with a CFO in Austin, Texas, and they're talking about trying to solve the same problem. And then, oh, by the way, there's someone from Salt Lake City who just solved this problem, who saw it on the message board. And instead of those two CFOs in Austin and Boston um, spending hours or weeks trying to solve this problem, they just get a recommendation and boom, they're on to the next thing. That is, that's the type of, um, of, of support that you can't, you can't get from, I don't know, from a CFO at a, at a major distribution or at a CFO of Fidelity. You need to talk to a CFO in the innovation economy who's dealing with the same growing pains as you are. Mm, that's really, that's great. I mean, to kind of summarize that, um, you know, for listeners in particular, like, and it's similar in, you know, I, I come more from the marketing standpoint and it's similar for like, fractional CMOs, but to kind of recap what you said, sort of the fractional CFO works really well for early stage companies, even through a series A, it's sort of for investors, it's, you know, sort of de-risks the investment. It sort of reduces the burn rate. You get, you don't need a full-time CFO. You get the talent of a premier or premium CFO for a fraction of the cost. And then it sort of becomes this inflection point. Sounds like series B and later, when the company is really throwing a lot of growth capital on the fire, investing a lot in in, in sales, marketing, et cetera, that's really when a full time CFO makes sense. And um, what I also loved, you know, and it, it just isn't lost on me, the interests of Silicon Valley Bank and its clients are just the business interests are so aligned. 
Yeah. Um, and it's, a, that's always a fun business to be in, right? When like, you know, your success is, is so tightly, uh, aligned, which I think is, which is, which is great. Um, so that's just me doing a, a classics or video summary. Um, but moving, <laughs> moving, right, moving right along, which I tend to do in a lot of my, a lot of those zoom calls that I do with folks that do like to get right down to the point oftentimes in zoom world. Yes, I am. I'm known for my, uh, my, my end cap summary debriefs, next steps. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm curious, like where, so let's talk, like where'd you go to college and, and what'd you study and what were, when you had realized you weren't going to be a professional hockey player um, and, and, and you maybe would, were considering some other career paths, like, you know, what were you considering when you were undergrad? And then, um, you know, talk a bit about like the types of experiences, like internship experiences, and then like, or, and then the sort of like, you know, that first move you made post-grad to sort of start to to pave the path forward for the career that you're now in. Yeah. So, um, so I, I will, I, I will blame it on this for my own pride, but um, I got hurt during two hockey seasons in high school. And so I never made the varsity team at Deerfield, which was, was a little heartbreaking, but, but was a very clear sign that I was not going to make it to the NHL. <laughs> right. So, um, so I pivoted my focus to lacrosse, which, um, was actually great. It's a sport I picked up later in life. And, um, I just had, I had more energy to practice lacrosse than I did hockey at that point in my life. Um, and so I ended up going to Wesleyan university in Connecticut, um, which is a, uh, for those NESTACers out there, it's a NESTAC school um, where, uh, and, and I played lacrosse there. Great lacrosse program. We went to two Final Fours uh, and one Elite Eight. And I just had an absolutely amazing experience there. If I could do college again, I would go back with the same people and do it again the exact nice. same way. Um, but so I, I majored in the economics there. Um, I, I very much value a liberal arts education. And the reason I value it is because I think you're pre- if you do it well, you are prepared to go into any field that you want because liberal arts teaches you how to learn. It doesn't necessarily teach you um, skills that you are going to use in your professional career, but it teaches you how to learn anything that is thrown at you. Um, and so that was important for me because my, my mom and dad both worked in, in uh, private schools and were teachers and administrators. And so I didn't have the, the kind of banking background that, I, that a lot of people who, who go into banking do. Um, and so it would have been easy for me much easier for me. And, and my, my brother actually is super successful in the, in the private school world right now. Um, it would have been much easier for me to just kind of follow in their footsteps. Um, but I kind of took a little bit of a risk and, and wanted to go into banking. I landed at Silicon Valley Bank in a time when um, it was much less of a household name um, and was super lucky to, to, to kind of get a job and, and hit the ground running. Um, was that your first I, job out of school? It's my, it my first job out of school. Um, and they hired two people 
in Boston that year. Um, and both of us were from Wesleyan, which was pretty funny. We came in from very different angles. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we were, we both had, have, have had great success in our careers. So it's been great. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I guess I'd say I put myself in a little bit of an uncomfortable position or an unfamiliar position, but I had faith through my education that I could, I could learn what I needed to learn on the job. Um, and, and I did that. And so spent, you know, a lot of my career with later stage, or I guess the, a lot of the beginning of my career with later stage kind of public and, and just before they, they go public companies and doing acquisition financing and some leverage buyouts and, um, that, that type of stuff. And I thought I wanted to do that kind of forever. Um, because I thought that was like real finance. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, my, my team at the, at that time was pretty top heavy and there, there, it became clear to me that I wasn't going to get promoted, not because I wasn't a worthy candidate for that next level, but because there wasn't enough room on the team for another senior person of that level. And so I loved SVB. So I, I looked around internally um, and there was this, this position open on, a, on this, this kind of series A and up team, um, which we call accelerator growth. Um, but that kind of means nothing to other people. So mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's the current team that I'm working for. Um, and I, I kind of pounced on it and I said, here's another uncomfortable decision or, or situation that I'm going to put myself in. Um, it's a definitely a bit of a risk because I know nothing about uh, how to structure, you know, debt for these companies or what their needs are. Um, and, and to be clear, they are very different needs. So um, I kind of put myself in this, this another uncomfortable position. And um, in both cases, one coming out of school and two making that uh, decision to, to change teams, they've been the best decisions I could have ever asked for. Um, and I think that what I'd say to, to the younger listeners is in both, the, the one common theme there is it was an uncomfortable and risky decision to make, but I kind of bet on myself and just put trust in myself that I could learn what I needed to learn to, to be successful. Um, and so when you're put in those situations, you can't do it too often, but I guess what it, my, my advice to people is when you're put in those situations, make a bet on yourself and, yeah. and trust that you'll recover if things don't go well. I love it. I'm a big fan of betting on oneself. I think that breeds success. And I also, um, yeah, I love, I love the way that you described that. You did a good job of that in the pre-podcast Q, uh, Q&A too, like just being in uncomfortable positions. Those have been the best, most rewarding sort of challenges in your career. Uh, that's great. I'm curious now in the role that you are in, like how, how big is your team? How many people sort of do you, you know, I'm curious how many people you're collaborating with and however you want to articulate it, like folks you're collaborating with folks that are under your direction, how big is your team? And then sort of like, how are you, how is your leader, like what's your leadership style and how has that had to be changed and modified, um, you know, amidst a pandemic? Yeah. So, um, another great question. So I've got two direct reports. So, you know, those are people directly on my team. Um, 
and and my team I would call is just the the enterprise software um, vertical within the accelerator and growth team. Um, and then we are kind of the 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 how, how do I say it? we're kind of like the face of the bank, but we collaborate with um, I, I would say you know thirty maybe even fifty people within SVB at different times because our clients' needs are constantly changing. And our job is really to know the broad platform. And then within each of the, the uh, products or services that SVB offers, we have experts who, who kind of go a mile deep inch wide. Um, and is it so, a little, just, just to jump in there is a little like to relate it to product is it a little like front of house, like product owner who's sort of a liaison between customer need, you know, like a product owner will like, Oh, this button's not working or we need this to do that or whatever. And then you're a liaison to those folks that go like, you go like, several, you know, a few inches deep, a mile wide. And then you go to the people that go a mile deep and you're like, Hey, like we need to go make this happen for the client. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, that is, that's probably a good way to describe it. Um, it, it I, I guess what I'd say is most of the time I can answer the question yeah. But then, but then I have other people who are um, uh, kind of executing on it, right? Sure. So, yeah, uh, the tacticians, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, because there's too much for me to do all, but you know, on my own, basically. right? Um, so yeah, so we're interacting with a lot of different teams, um, and I guess what I'd say with my management style for my direct team is to build trust first. Um, and it's hard um, because you're so busy trying to do your own, you know, your own thing um, and get your own stuff done. But if you're, I guess what I, I guess what I try to think about is if I want to get to the next level, I need the people um, who are on my team to be able to do my job eventually. And so if I'm not spending time, you know, cultivating trust and developing those, those people's skills, then there's no way that it's going to allow me to level myself up. Um, That's right. So one of the things, one of the things that I've found my, I, I have loved about myself and I don't know if I forced myself to do this or, um, or uh, I, I don't know if this is just innate or it's, it's something that I learned. But what I've done is I've, I've tried to celebrate my team's wins more than my wins. And it brings me a ton of joy to see you know, a, a VP on my team go out there and win a deal. And it brings me almost even more joy than, than it does when I go out there and win a deal. Um, and I think if you have that mentality as a manager of like th the people who are on your team, their success is better than your success. Mm -hmm. That that can drive every other decision that you make um, in where you spend your time and how you treat the people on your team, um, how you talk about the people on your team with others within the organization. Because another huge part of management is making sure you're you know, your direct reports are getting exposure to people that are, you know, more important than, than you. Um, and so I don't know if that answers the question directly, but I, but I think it does. 
what I've tried to do is just say, if I, if my employees are successful, then that makes me look really good. And, um, it also creates a, a lot of trust. And when you're, you know, when you're moving jobs or doing different things, they're going to reach out to your new team and say like, you know, Russ is awesome. He's, yeah. he's, he, he will treat you so well. And if you treat people well, they're going to work their butts off for you. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely am cautious of certain things I say that I know cancel culture will come after me for, but one way that this leadership can be described as, and I'll say it, not you, is sort of servant leadership. Some people these days get upset calling it that, but sort of another softer way of saying it is like a heart-driven leader, but it's essentially when you're really, you're, you're making it your, your North Star is to serve your, you know, your, the folks underneath you, champion them, you know, like give give them all the gratitude and 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 and, and celebrate you know success um, you know through them for them and and that breeds the kind of culture that you know makes folks um, you know happy to go to work every day you know want to want to step up want to not just check the boxes but you know think critically about you know new ways to add value etc. So um, no, you totally answered the question and and that that's sort of how I would that's kind of my that, that's my that's my summary of it. Um, but no, I lo- I love it. And I, just to kind of seg- you know segueing off of that, I'm I'm curious. Like, w- let's talk about some of the subject matter that you're getting into, and and some of the the stuff that you're most interested in. So like, we, you and I have connected a, a bit more deeply because you know we're we're collaborating on these reports and and, and clusters of of innovation in Boston that are sort of hiding in plain sight, but driving global innovation. Silicon Valley Bank uh, got behind a report we did on robotics, and we kind of dug into microlocation robotics. But you know, here we are right now in November 2021, and the next couple months, uh, we'll be you know we're, we're collaborating on coming out with a report on cybersecurity. And you really opened my eyes up to this market in a way uh, they hadn't been before, and connected me with and, and some of the analysts I work with 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 folks that. I've really broken down cybersecurity in a way that has me sort of like taking a left turn and looking at like the way code is written and just, you know, from the ground up, like the zeros and ones that kind of like you know, just build the, you know, the, the future software products of today and tomorrow, like need to just have like sort of like security by design. Um, could you just chat a bit about like cybersecurity tech sector right now and, and why it excites you so much? Yeah, so uh, I'll start by saying I think cybersecurity is the single most important um, sub-vertical in the innovation economy. There's there's much bigger problems in the world with climate change. We've got a super divisive uh, population right now, water and food supply, but not much of that can be solved by software. So when we're when we're talking about something that can be solved by software. Um, I think cybersecurity is is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's cybersecurity has gone through a couple different um, uh, kind of waves of of uh, I don't know the right way to say it, but waves of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So at first, people thought, well, maybe the government might be. Um, responsible for cybersecurity, but very quickly that was decided. No, that's that's not going to that's not going to be the responsibility of the government um, to regulate around what people can and can't do. Um, then 
you know, for a very long time, it was, well, each company, each enterprise has to um, surround their, their servers, their people, their endpoint devices with cybersecurity uh, products and services. And it's kind of up to each of them to, to protect themselves. Well, in the past, let's say 18 months, probably a little bit longer than that, the main ways that people that that uh, that bad actors are gaining access to um, to large enterprises and large large uh, you know data lakes is through the supply chain. Meaning, uh, company X sells a software product with a vulnerability to company Y, and and because company Y is using that software, a bad actor can access that, you know, the, the, the um, company wise systems. And because that has been the way most of these, these hacks have happened, and it has affected company X's stock price and reputation, meaning, you know, um, if I am a, if I am selling an uh, a, uh, HR software product, and all of my clients get a notification or hear in the news that my software product was hacked and therefore their whole system has become vulnerable, they are going that that HR platform is going to um, be have a very difficult time climbing out of that reputational um, kind of disaster. So I think this new wave of cybersecurity, which I am unbelievably excited about, is or is going to be the people who are writing the code itself are going to have to make that code the, the safest possible um, or, or the the, they're, they're going to have to make it so there are the least possible vulnerabilities within that code. As a lot of, penetrable as possible. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that you do that is, is making it shorter. Um, you know, the more lines of code, the more possible vulnerabilities there are. So there's right. a lot of companies trying to figure out, like, you know, how do I, how do I consolidate what, you know, this code does this small containers stacked in the cloud. Like, exactly. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so, um, and then the, the other, the other aspect of this is many of those containers are actually not super, they're not super important. So you might not, you might not need to protect them as much, but right. there might be certain ones that, um, you know, that, that interact with different, um, you know, different identities. And when I say identity, that could be a server. It could be an, an endpoint laptop or cell phone or something. So I guess what I'm saying is the, the onus for cybersecurity is now, it seems to be shifting mm -hmm. to the actual software um, providers, which I think it should have always been. Um, but it took this, these supply chain attacks to kind of force their hand and say, it's actually, it actually is going to cost me more if I 
have a if, if I have a supply chain attack than it is to just make this code correct from the beginning. It mm-hmm. might take a little longer. It might take hiring better um, engineers, but in the end, it's going to be more costly if I don't do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't expect. I mean, if you had the answer to this, by the way, we we should go start a business together. Um, how do you go to the enter like to large enterprises that have already you know hard coded their massive you know software offerings and introduce the concept of like this concept of like well the code from like day one needed to be done in such and such a way like is that sort of like the nut that needs to be cracked now is like how you can sort of go in and like retros like retroactively like impact that code so that's a phenomenal question um it's a super complicated answer i'm going to try to try to boil it down um so the best the best software companies are have a level of of devops meaning um, mm-hmm. uh, basically how often they're uh, updating and putting new code into the, um, you know, the, the real world environment. If you look at a Netflix, they're, uh, they're issuing new code into, um, into uh, you know, customer used environments multiple times a day, mm-hmm. 10, 15, sometimes even more than that. Mm-hmm. So in, in one of the reasons they can do that is because they have created their entire uh, software platform using containers, meaning it's a bunch of very small pieces of code that when orchestrated all together um, will do some action. Mm -hmm. If you have one, let's just say you have one very long container, it's very hard to go in and change that that change a line of code in that container and know that that entire code string is going to um, yeah. perform as, as needed. And not cause a disruption. Exactly, not cause yeah. a disruption. It's much easier if you have very small pockets of code and you can say, okay, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna make this one container better, more efficient, more safe, and then I can run you know, you can run test environments to make sure that it's interacting with the, you know, the orchestration network to, um, to do what it is supposed to do. But I think, I mean, I think you are, you've hit the nail on the head, which is software companies that don't have this DevOps first mentality are going to struggle with updating their code to be security first. Whereas, companies who have been built from day one to put DevOps first, they're going to have a much easier time, um, you know, correcting what might, what might be a vulnerability. Fascinating. And for folks that are, uh, that are still with us here and are finding this as enlightening as me, we're like, I'm really looking forward to like the deep dive report that's going to come out in the next couple months. That's going to unpack this. A lot because this is kind of the this is where I've been told you know that it seems the analysts are really arriving at as a real area to explore um, for that cybersecurity report that's being worked on right now. Russ, like I think we, um, I'm certainly I appreciate you saying I'm hitting the nail on the head. I'm also well informed thanks to you and friends of you and the analysts I work with. Um, so this has been super. So I really appreciate you sort of like taking us through that at sort of a 
a top line and a few layers into the weeds. Um, we love to end every episode with just our interviewees kind of challenging listeners um, to, to, to sort of one, you know, one sort of thing like to, you know, to think about it could be big, could be small. What's your, what's your challenge for listeners today? So this is, um, this is something that I'm trying to do myself and continually trying to do more of, but um, I think climate change is the, we, we will all be gone off of this earth if we don't make huge systematic changes to the way we live our lives as humans on this earth. So, um, and, and I don't know that the governments around the world are going to get their SHIT together mm-hmm. um, fast enough to make a real difference. And so my challenge to everybody is figure out one, two, three ways to reduce your carbon footprint. Um, one of the things I've done is, you know, I think a lot of people probably live in Boston, Eversource that are listening to this podcast. Eversource is our energy provider. Eversource allows you to choose um, an electricity option that is purely renewables. Um, it costs a little bit more money, but I have much, uh, I feel much better about myself. And I actually, they send you a little certificate and it is hanging on my fridge to remind me every day. Um, but I, I think it's just so important. I've got a two year old and a, and a two month old. And I, I try to think of what world they're going to live in and what world I've brought them into. And I think if we don't make changes on a personal level um, faster than the government will do it, then I, I think we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, well said. Good, good challenge set. Eversource, everyone. Let's do it. Let's sign up together. Um, Russ, this has been awesome, man. Really appreciate you being you know, present with me for, for so long today. And I'm looking forward to sharing this conversation with the community. Really, really appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, for, for anybody listening who's interested in entrepreneurship, uh, interested in, in the innovation economy, I would be happy to have a discussion with you, uh, one-on-one or in a group or, or however you would like to do it. So, um, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and, and we'll set something up. Great. And is that the best way? We'll just find you on LinkedIn and reach out. That's probably the best way. Yeah. Um, it, Excellent. Thank you so much, Russ. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.